Just like most episodes, this one contains strong language. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests and in no way represent the state of Oklahoma, the Oklahoma Historical Society, or the Oklahoma State Historic Preservation Office. Welcome to the Musings of an ADD Mind podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Jack. And once again, it's the end of the month. It's Science with Lars. Yeah, I have no idea what we're going to talk about this time. Well, by we're going to talk about, he's going to talk and I'm going to listen because it's a learning experience for me. So Lars, I'm going to hand it over to you so you can teach. All right, I'll do my best. Now, um, I need to be clear. I am not uh, an expert in this topic. Um, however, my wife is. She has a PhD in biochemistry and a master's in chemistry. And today we are going to be talking about chemistry, um, especially uh, the history of how it came to be a science the way it is now. Um, we, Whenever I do a talk on science, I like to go into the history, the theory, and the application. And this one is going to be especially focusing on the history because it's a very long, complicated one with many different contributors, and I'm not going to come close to naming them all <laughs> um, or all their accomplishments. Um, you know, you can obviously uh, spend your entire lifetime studying and researching and engineering in this field. And so I, I've, again, as with any of these fields, that's the case. Um, this is just one where it's uh, near and dear to my heart though not as much to my mind as it is to my wife. So um, <laughs> right, any, right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have certainly gotten her input on preparing today's top, uh, talk. So, I mean, let's just get right into it then. Sure, uh, yeah. What let's is chemistry, going. right? Um, people have probably heard the term chemistry before. They know about that there are elements, that there are reactions that happen. As generally as possible, chemistry is the study and the application of the properties and interactions of matter. Matter being, well, basically everything you can feel that you interact with it is distinct from vacuum, of which is most of what we consider space. It is particles with mass. We call that matter. And, you know, that is actually a very advanced definition. It took a long time to get to that point. Uh, it's, in fact, some of the earliest things that humans did could, in some sense, fall under the banner of chemistry. Lighting a fire. That's a chemical reaction. That's one of the first inventions that humans made after, you know, cracking one stone with another or perhaps around the same time. Speaking of fire, um, did you see that they just uh, have released that uh, one of our ancestor species, Homo naledi? Uh, naledi, yes. Thank you. Yes. Used fire. Yes. Uh, not really so much. Not really an ancestor so much as a relative. Uh, well, yes, in the family uh, yes, tree. Homo, yes. Homo naledi, uh, yeah, recently was found to also use fire, uh, which is somewhat surprising given that they were somewhat smaller brained than us Homo sapiens. Um, they are thought to have branched off from the rest of the human family tree quite a while ago, but persisted until re the relatively recent time of about, I think, 250,000 years ago. Anyway, yeah. that's, anyway that's more I of found a topic that fascinating. The, <laughs> yes, that's more of a topic for our, um, for our first science episode or perhaps a future one where we delve into human evolution which yes. um i think that will that will definitely be coming up at some point um but i want to try to keep things broad 
Right. Back to like, chemistry. Sorry to back to put chemistry, you on a yes. side quest. So fire uh, is, is a chemical reaction. So is the making of paints and dyes, as we've seen, you know, some of the oldest relics we have of things that we would actually consider art are painted cave walls. Um, and more a bit more recently, uh, metallurgy is another thing that in, in which chemistry plays a part um, where metals are refined from ores and melted and forged and um, alloyed together. These are all things that can be described using the language of chemistry. Uh, and of course, cooking. Uh, cooking is a chemical reaction in which heat is applied to the food as well as uh, various compounds thrown together to flavor it or make cook in a different way. Um, the resulting changes to the food, again, can be described as chemical reactions. I mean, even more broadly, life itself is a complex series of ongoing chemical reactions. But uh, at that point, it becomes mm, just about impossible to describe it using solely chemistry, and we have to start using the discipline of biology. So with those very early beginnings, um, that was long before people had any idea of anything we might think of as science. No need to go into what science is. We've had uh, two brief explanations of it and a whole episode devoted to the philosophy of science. So if you haven't had a chance, uh, I'd recommend going back and listening to those. Uh, all the way back uh, in the 400s BC, uh, a Greek philosopher, uh, Empedocles, I hope I'm saying that right, uh, was one of the first, and the first we know who wrote it down, to demonstrate that air, for example, has substance and is not, in fact, a, a void or vacuum. It is, as we now understand, composed of atoms and molecules, just like all the other things that we think of as more solid or liquid. But this was a new discovery at the time. It's one of those things that, if you don't think about it, maybe you never realize that just because you can't see the air in front of you doesn't mean it's not actually there in some substantive sense. A little bit later, uh, around 380 BC, uh, Democritus, a Greek philosopher, and Kannada, an Indian one, both had ideas uh, of atoms, the indivisible smallest substances of matter. Now, obviously, they didn't have any experiments to verify this, uh, but they did correctly reason that Perpetual divisibility is probably not possible. Uh, now, as it turns out, atoms are in fact divisible. That's something that was learned much later. But the uh, idea of a smallest unit of a substance it can be traced back to at least these two, probably earlier, but they're the ones that we have written records of. Jumping forward quite a bit, because there was not really a whole lot in terms of actual theorizing or experimentation going on. There were things like uh, cements and plasters that were made. Uh, these are also chemical things, uh, glasses. Um, but these were often brute force. There was no theory behind them uh, to really make them a scientific discipline. But yet starting in the uh, Roman times all the way through the 17th century, you had alchemists, um, especially during the medieval period, they were known for trying to produce a philosopher's stone, as it was known, a mystical artifact that could do everything from produce long life to turning what they called base metals into gold. Um, depending on who you ask, it would have different mystical properties. But all of them had this idea that if certain processes could be done on certain other substances, that you could re result in this philosopher's stone. Now, that is, as 
we discussed last time, not scientific. Why? Because they had a particular idea in mind of what the results should be and didn't ask the main question of what should the results be? They simply assumed that eventually you could get this magical stone and to no surprise, at least to a modern audience, they never found it. However, they did start establishing the idea of getting purified substances, of mixing things in recorded proportional amounts, of noting down the steps that they took to try to produce this philosopher's stone. So while they didn't do anything like what we think of as true chemical experiments, they did end up doing experiments. They did end up making discoveries because they mixed and processed things in repeatable ways. So they were not scientific in their goals, but they were at least a little scientific in their methods. They had repeatable results. Unfortunately, of course, because they were all trying to get themselves rich and famous, they also, and didn't have a great series of, uh, a great system of copyright, I should say, they often heavily obscured their findings and made it very, and had no standardization of terminology, which made it very difficult for anyone else to understand them, which was the point, but it also makes it hard for us to go back and understand what they actually did discover or didn't. However, um, you know, this, this, you know, despite the fraud that came along with that and the um, unscientific nature of it, it did lead to what would later become the field of chemistry. Uh, one of the first major figures in modern chemistry is Robert Boyle. Uh, he lived uh, from 1627 to 1691. You may have heard of Boyle's Law if you're taking any chemistry. Um, side note, if you have a law or phenomenon or unit of measure named after you, that kind of implies you have really made it as a scientist. Either yes, you name yes. It yourself, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, either you name it yourself or others name it in your honor. Um, but yes, if you get... <coughs> excuse me. Yes, if you get your name attached to a unit of measure or a law or famous equation that is generally an extremely high honor for any scientist to achieve. Um, so uh, Boyle's law notes that the relationship between temperature, pressure, and volume of a gas is predictable under at least what's considered ideal conditions. Um, he actually started in the field of alchemy and gradually transitioned to a more scientific way of looking at things. Um, and this is why he's often the maybe not exactly the father of modern chemistry but certainly one of its uh founding figures um so again it's chemistry is still trying to break free of the scourge of alchemy and people haven't really developed a whole lot of ways of accurately purifying substances but there was still bits of progress here and there uh when you get to about another um a bit over 100 years later, there was a man named Antoine Laurent de Lavoisier. Uh, he was he lived from 1743 to 1794. He was the first to widely publicize the idea of the conservation of mass. Probably not actually the first to discover it, but he tended to get credited with it because um, he actually got the word out to people instead of keeping it in a journal somewhere. Um, and also the first to begin naming elements uh, as we now understand them, uh, realizing that, hey, when I there are certain substances that when I do everything I can to them, I still can't break them down any further. I'm going to consider these the atoms, the elements that all other things are made of. And this was a big change from the classic air, water, fire, and earth that the alchemists had thought things are made of. Um, you know, he only named a few. Uh, there weren't that many that identified. Still, this was on the road to what we now think of as chemistry. 
Uh, specifically, uh, he identified hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, phosphorus, sulfur, zinc, and mercury. That's uh, a big improvement over air, water, fire, and earth. I think you'd agree. Um, yeah, that's, uh, I mean, yeah. really, that's pretty impressive. Pretty impressive. Yes, the, yes. The time frame and all, and all of that. So, yeah, yeah. Th this was published in uh, 1789 in Le Traité Elementaire de Chimie, or, or the Elementary Treatise of Chemistry. Um, and uh, next up would be John Dalton. Uh, he also has a unit of measure named for him. Unfortunately, I don't remember what it is off the top of my head. Um, he lived from 1766 to 1844. Um, and he was the first to propose uh, what we now think of as atomic theory. Not just that matter is composed of elements made of atoms, um, but that they can also bond together to form molecules. And again, th this, this contribution really can't be overstated. And again, he has a unit of measurement after him. This really kind of goes to show how important it was. He was, uh, how to put this? realizing that there could be a system of these elements and that they weren't simply random uh, was a huge insight. Again, much like uh, just prior to Darwin, Carl Linné had worked out that there was this system of hierarchy of organisms. Dalton worked out that there was a system of atoms. Um, so this was a really big deal. Um, and the, the final uh, father of modern chemistry, if you will, along with uh, Boyle, Lavoisier, and Dalton would be uh, John Jacob uh, Berzelius, I'm probably not saying this correctly, um, but he was the first to formalize the system of denoting elements and molecules that we know today, with uh, each element having a scientific name and a one or two letter abbreviation, along with a number denoting the, how many of that particular element appears in a given molecule. Uh, the main difference was that he used a superscript uh, instead of a subscript for the number of uh, elements in a given molecule. Uh, he also introduced several concepts uh, like the catalysis, polymers, isomers, and allotropes, although his definitions for them uh, aren't exactly the way they are used today. Uh, one other important thing in the 19th century, early 19th century, was uh, Friedrich Wöhler. Um, he synthesized the molecule of urea. Uh, this sounds a bit like urine, and that is because it is, in fact, the molecule that gives urine its distinctive smell. This may not seem like a big deal if you know anyone who's in organic or biochemistry, but this was the first time someone had been able to produce a substance that was previously only produced in an organism. Uh, this basically put to rest the idea of vitalism or the elan vital or vital force. The idea that matter that is in a living organism is somehow substantively or qualitatively different from matter that is found anywhere else. Right. Uh, Many people who have problems with evolution also tend to act as if matter that is in an organism is, or rather life itself, is some sort of mystical property of matter rather than a physical one. And this basically put that to bed. But as you can see, the superstition persists in many deniers of science today. Yes. <laughs> if nothing else, I think the one of the big insights I want to convey when talking about chemistry is just how much science is a cross-disciplinary field or rather that's the, the, that science well done produces cross-disciplinary results so we've been talking about how this affects things like our knowledge of our other of our relatives that aren't our species our right. understanding of cooking of dyes and also of what life is Th these are all things that cross over each other all the time uh, you can't really study any scientific field in complete isolation 
uh, especially not nowadays where there's just so much knowledge all over the place. Yeah, right. It's sort of like building a house. You, yeah. you can't just have an electrician come in and then be like, oh, hey, I got a house. No, you got to have the framers. You got to have the plumbers and all of them together give you the house. And that's yes. sort of science without chemistry or this or this. You can't get, they all touch. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, as we've seen in previous ones, this is not the perhaps somewhat different from evolution and cosmology. Chemistry, its history has not so much been a matter of overturning previous bad assumptions. I mean, there was a bit of that, but it's more just about making discovery after discovery after discovery and right. bringing them all together into a unified field. So at this point, you had very basis of what we think of chemistry. You had the theory of atoms. You have equations that can describe how uh, atoms move and interact, expand and contract, and gain and lose temperature. You have ideas for how atoms can combine into molecules. You have the idea that atoms can be arranged systematically. And we understand that all matter that we interact with on a regular basis is made of atoms. Um, even if it is in things that are alive. So that brings us up to, well, rather at this point, it was still a lot of only somewhat related fields, right? Um, getting into the latter half of the 19th and in the beginning of the 20th century, that's when chemistry really started taking shape as a distinct multidisciplinary, but all under the same umbrella field. So while there was the idea of atoms being something that can be studied systematically, there wasn't yet actually a good system of organizing them. People had tried various ways of doing so. Um, so one of the first, rather the first person to have the insights needed to make the arrangement of atoms that we now know uh, was Dmitry Mendeleev. Uh, he was the first to publish the periodic table of the elements. Uh, in 1869, he published a book called Principles of Chemistry. And it was his great insight that at various periods or uh, intervals of atomic number or not atomic he didn't understand atomic number yet but of atomic weights that had been measured uh, by chemists before there were certain repeating chemical properties uh, certain uh, metals for example would behave in a certain way that he could then classify as alkali metals and this model was so useful and perhaps he would you know he might have seemed a bit arrogant, but he was so sure that his model was was accurate that he was able to accurately and correctly uh, update the various the atomic weights for various elements and predict the the properties and weights of elements that had not yet been discovered when he published it. Which, as we've discussed before, that is perhaps the gold standard of a scientific theory, one which can accurately explain existing data, refine existing data, and predict new data with accuracy. Yes, that, yes. Yeah, that's, it, that, that that's is, cool. <laughs> that is the gold standard of a theory. Um, if, you, if you have a model that can do that, and as we said before, all models are wrong, some are more useful than others. Well, this one was a whole lot more useful than any model that came before. Right. Um, it, he was a, within a few years of publication, he was able to, or rather, scandium, gallium, and germanium were discovered, um, all with the weights and properties that he had predicted which is really fantastic. Uh, I mean, many more elements were since discovered, again, by noting and then filling gaps in this periodic table. Uh, around the same time, uh, J. Willard Gibbs uh, was doing work in chemistry, and he did for physical chemistry what Mendeleev did for theoretical chemistry. He uh, did a whole lot to bring 
physical chemistry into a much more rigorously defined field where he had equations that would accurately describe the temperature, pressure, energy, volume, and entropy, or the likelihood of a thermal system to reach equilibrium in any given chemical reaction. This made chemistry a much more practical field as well. This is where you start having the ability to make mass chemical manufacturing prop, uh, plants, uh, because with these kind of equations, you can figure out just what input and output and energy you need to get the results that you want. Um, this would later pave the way for things like um, uh, fertilizer and explosives manufacture, um, both with the same process, actually, around World War One. So, um, you know, we're, we're getting near the end of the 20th, 19th century here. In 1885, uh, Eugene Goldstein identified uh, what we now know as protons uh, when he was using a what was a then called a cathode ray. He noticed that the atoms that it went over would end up being positively charged. And I eventually realized that these are protons. This isn't surprising. Protons are charged. They are the most massive or nearly the most massive particles in an atom. And so he was able to identify them. The cathode ray itself was eventually recognized to be composed of particles as well, which we now know as electrons, the negatively charged parts of an atom. Fascinating. Um, yes. Um, and uh, if you are familiar with older display technologies, you may have heard of cathode ray tubes. That's where they get their name. Uh, they shoot a beam of electrons at a screen that is coated with um, phosphorescent chemicals that light up for a short time when they are excited by electrons and do so um, either black and white or uh, in sets of three colors, red, green, and blue. Right. Back from the day when I was my dad's remote control. <laughs> yes, I remember having a TV like that. You're a bit older than <laughs> me, but uh, my family was always behind the times when it came to TV technology. So. I was, I was quite happy when we moved and got cable and it came with the remote. Oh, we never had cable growing up. So Marie and Pierre Curie identified polonium and radium, the first known radioactive elements. And a few years later, they were able to successfully isolate radium uh, in a pure sample. Uh, unfortunately, uh, they both died relatively young. Uh, Pierre Curie was killed in a carriage accident in 1906. And Marie died from radiation poisoning in 1934, thanks to all the radioactive material that she'd been working with. And um, however, isn't all of her notes still like highly radioactive? Yes. Yes. Uh, in fact, you can even develop uh, photographic plates by placing them between the pages of her notebook. And in fact, uh, they were able to get a handprint from her. Um, <laughs> however, uh, despite uh, dying, I believe she was 64, I think. Um, so not that young, but she certainly could have lived longer had she not been in the line of work she was. Sorry, 66. Uh, she's still managed to win the Nobel Prize twice in her lifetime, the first person to do so. That is uh, impressive. The first woman to do so, and the first and so far only person to do so in two different fields, chemistry and physics. Wow. That's really cool. <laughs> uh, yes, a very accomplished woman um, with that we could all be so uh, dedicated and accomplished. Yes. Um, and so that brings us to the 20th century. Uh, this is where chemistry really took off. Uh, in 1913, Niels Bohr was the first to introduce a model of an atom that included negatively charged electrons orbiting a positively charged nucleus, and each orbit was defined by a quantized energy level. This is the introduction of what we now know as quantum mechanics, and we are not going to get into quantum mechanics. Uh, <laughs> as, yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, everybody can watch the documentary that's coming out on that here in a couple months, Ant-Man and Wasp and Quantumanium. 
that should yeah everything yeah uh, but uh yes as even people who work in quantum mechanics say if you think you understand it you probably don't <laughs> i'm not quoting exactly uh, but uh, th th this was the first introduction to that and quantum mechanics and chemistry are very closely linked because quantum mechanics basically deals with the parts that make up an atom while chemistry tends to mainly deal with atoms as they are actually formed um, mm -hmm. also in 1913 uh, Henry Moseley introduced the concept of atomic numbers uh, which was more accurate for ordering atoms than the atomic weights the atomic weights um, as it turns out were thrown off somewhat from their natural ordering because of another concept discovered in 1913 by Frederick Soddy, isotopes. Isotopes are uh, atoms that are chemically identical to each other, but differ in their number of protons, at least as we under now understand it. At the time, it would just recognize that you could have chemically identical atoms that nevertheless have different atomic weights. Um, and now we know that they have the same number of protons, but different numbers of neutrons, which were discovered not long afterward. So again, I don't have time to get into all the quantum mechanics right now, but suffice it to say, the model of the atom was improved somewhat over Bohr. Uh, eventually it was understood that electrons move in probabilistic orbitals. They are indeed defined by their energy levels. And as electrons gain and lose energy, they bounce between these orbitals. Um, and that is often how we get the colors of light that we see uh, when an electron is excited and and drops back down to a lower energy state it lets out a photon of a various or of a particular frequency and we can go in lots of different directions with that we're not going to right now um but by the middle of the 20th century or even fairly early 20th century our understanding of the structure of an atom was very close to what we understand it today so that's a very brief and understated history of chemistry but what does this actually mean? What what is it to be a chemist, right? Right. Well, that's the basis uh, of the modern world is chemistry, and people don't it, realize it, that it really is. Um, che chemistry and uh, and the physics outside it, they, those together basically underlie just about everything. Well, let me back up. Everything that we have that works on semiconductors also relies on the principles of quantum physics. So maybe I'll do a deeper dive into that one of these days. But if I thought I was unprepared for chemistry, I'm really unprepared for quantum <laughs> physics. <laughs> yeah, We can do that one a couple of years down the road. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let me go and get my PhD and I'll get back to you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the actual theory of chemistry, theories of chemistry basically, are the application of atomic theory in various ways. So... Every element comes in a configuration of protons, neutrons, and electrons, uh, starting from the simplest element, hydrogen, which is one proton with one electron, with some of its isotopes containing a neutron or even two, um, all the way up to the highest number naturally occurring element, uranium, uh, which is 92, and it has, well, 92 protons and a varying number of neutrons. Um, all in the range of 230 to 240 total protons and neutrons. But there are, of course, elements that occur beyond that. Uh, they are even more radioactive than uranium. Uh, they all tend to have to be made in things like supernovas, where we don't get a chance to observe them up close, or particle accelerators, where we can, but only for very brief 
amounts of time before they decay into other elements. The good old half-life. Is that half-life? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, I'll get to that in a little bit. Um, so the, as I mentioned before, the atoms on the periodic table are arranged according to their chemical properties. Certain atoms tend to cluster together by having similar chemical properties, and they do so because of the electrons that orbit them do so at various energy levels. And at certain energy levels, only a certain number of electrons can occupy each one. And when you have atoms with the same number of electrons in their highest numbered orbital, they will have similar chemical properties because they'll bond with other atoms in the same way because of the number of electrons that are available. Each electron orbital is often, or can be called a shell, can be filled up with, as I said, a certain number of electrons. And mm, that's not quite right, sorry. <laughs> no, it's all right. The various energy levels that electrons can occupy are arranged in what's known as valence shells. And these have various orbitals in them that are all at a particular energy level, and electrons can only occupy them at certain amounts. When atoms have electrons that are in the same orbital shell at the same number, then they have similar chemical properties. So you have things like the noble gases where the electron shells are completely full of electrons and it matches the number of protons. And so those atoms are very happy to do nothing at all. They don't tend to interact with each other much except by just physical bumping into each other. They don't tend to bond. Um, they are known as the noble gases. And they, do, they don't bond because their electrons are all happy to be matched with a proton. But other okay. atoms don't have an exact number of electrons filling their outermost little shell. And so when they bump into another atom that happens to have maybe more than it needs, well, they can start sharing electron. Now, an electron exists in a state of probability. You think of it as a particle, which works, but as we mentioned earlier, it was also first discovered as a ray or a wave. Um, and this is because electrons have very, very little mass. And so they tend to behave in both particle and wave ways. That's, again, getting into quantum physics. We don't need to do that too much now. But they have mass, yes. So you could weigh them on a scale if you could isolate them well enough. But they don't have much of it. And so they move very near the speed of light. And they wobble just like a photon does at a particular frequency. Uh, and technically, almost everything does. Uh, even atoms and even molecules. Even you, if you were uh, moving close enough to the speed of light, you could determine a wavelength that you have. But it tends to cancel out at these scales right. that we're used to. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so these electrons don't necessarily occupy a point in space so much as they are likely to be found at a given spread at any given time. Uh, and that's how these orbitals are defined. They're defined as a probability of finding an electron there at a given point in time. But when these interact with each other, uh, they, they can be very... Uh, sorry. Sorry, I'm not the chemistry teacher here. I'm doing my best. No, uh, it's quite uh, all right. Cut, it's quite all right. right. So <laughs> when, these, when these atoms interact with each other, if they happen to have an electron that goes between the two of them, well, that electron occupies both the orbitals and pulls the atoms together to make a molecule. That is a covalent bond. So I mentioned these are the valence shells, as they're known. 
and the electrons that share them pull them together very tightly. Water, for example, is covalently bonded. You have oxygen atom, which is essentially missing two, two electrons in its outermost shell. And then you have hydrogen atoms, which only have one in a shell that could hold two. So when they bump into each other, well, it doesn't take a whole lot of energy to bring them together and make the famous molecule known as water or H2O. You have two hydrogens noted by the H2 and the one oxygen atom noted by the O. And they share an electron around them. And because the hydrogen nucleus is just a single proton, it tends to stay there pretty well. Now, this obviously can be disrupted with things like electricity or enough heat, but generally speaking, water is going to be pretty stable. Now, as mentioned, the proton has a positive charge. And um, so you've probably seen a diagram of a water molecule looks a bit like Mickey Mouse. Yes. Uh, this is because uh, of the way the charges are shared between the protons and the electrons, where the electrons spend more time around the heavy oxygen nucleus than they do around the very light protons of the hydrogen nucleus. So instead of just being end to end, they end up being a bit skewed off to the side. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because, because of the, the charges involved, I don't necessarily, uh, I'm not necessarily able to explain it beyond that, but, um, if you're wondering why a water molecule looks like Mickey mouse, instead of just, uh, three atoms end to end it, it's to do with that. Okay. So, uh, when, when chemists use chemical equations, uh, which you've probably seen if you took high school or college chemistry at all, you need to understand the elements going in, the elements coming out, and how they arrange into molecules. And this really harkens back to the alchemists, in a sense, where they were taking accurate measurements and notations of what they were mixing, trying to get a particular result. Of course, they never actually got the result they were looking for. But thanks to the application of atomic theory, industrial chemistry is a thing. They're able to understand the chemicals going in, the chemicals coming out, the energy needed to make it happen, and the conditions needed to make it happen. And as I've tried to stress in every episode so far, an important part of science is not just the theoretical knowledge, but the actual practical application of that knowledge. One of the great uh, innovations in the 20th century was nitrogen fertilizer. Doesn't sound like that big a deal, but uh, before that, the only way to get much needed nitrogen to the soil in order to, for plants to grow well was constant crop rotation uh, with different plants that would either take up or fix nitrogen into the soil for other plants to be able to use later. Right, right. They do that here in Oklahoma. Just Oklahoma's a wheat state. We grow a ton of wheat. But you'll see in the wheat fields, like every fourth year, they grow uh, canola. And then when uh, they plow that in, that boosts back what the soil needs to make the wheat grow. So it's always weird. Randomly, you just have these fields that all of a sudden are a beautiful shade of yellow. Fascinating. Precisely what you were saying. So, yeah, I, <laughs> I see that in the more country parts of Oklahoma, which is a good chunk of Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. uh, interesting example. I alluded to it earlier. Uh, Fritz Haber uh, during World War One. Uh, was a German chemist who, on the one hand, worked out how to produce nitrogen fertilizer and also explosions <laughs> with these and and, uh, and chemical weapons. So his work both 
saved or enhanced many lives by making crops much easier to grow and also unfortunately uh, ended or harmed many others. Yes. Um, <laughs> complicated man. Um, again, we don't have time to go into biographies of each of these fascinating people. Um, you can uh, learn more about them on your own time, I hope. But it's a he's a great example of what you can do with knowledge. Knowledge, as they say, is power. And he had a lot of it, both to help and to harm. Yes. So, uh, as you said earlier, Jack, almost everything today is chemistry in some way or another. Uh, the uh, Everything that you see in your house was probably at some point uh, designed by a chemical engineer, at least some facet of it. Uh, obviously, the many components of our computers required many years of research into chemistry, into quantum mechanics, into manufacturing techniques, and even psychology, just the way that the the keyboard is laid out, on the way that a mouse works to track a pointer across the screen, all these things, and of course the software written on the computer, all these things come together to produce the modern world. This you know, $1,000 machine sitting in front of me enables me to access most of the world's knowledge to talk with people across the world that I've never even met in person. It's amazing. And none of it could happen without people working in chemistry to produce the materials and the methods that we so rely on today. Right. So, you know, again, I'm not necessarily the chemistry teacher. That's my wife. Uh, and I'm sure she could probably give you much more information on it, but I hope today we've gotten into a bit of the history and application of chemistry. Uh, if you have notes for me and ways to say this better, I'd be happy to hear it because, you know, I'm not the teacher here, but <laughs> uh, hopefully uh, this this has been entertaining and interesting. Uh, Jack, do you have any more questions about chemistry before we wrap it up? This, I realize this is a little bit of a short episode. I don't think I have any questions, but I will say that my favorite form of chemistry is taking something like a brisket or a pork shoulder and putting it by a low fire and then the chemistry from the smoke makes that brisket totally delicious and tender if you do the chemistry right. Yeah, it it, it affects, you know, it's one of the earliest types of chemistry that people are doing and we're still doing it today. Uh, yes. But now with, with the theoretical understanding of atomic theory, we can actually cook better than anyone ever could in the past. It's really amazing. Yes, and we still choose to go to McDonald's, but that's for a different podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, hopefully uh, with with the uh, holidays coming up, uh, you'll all get a chance to put some of that chemistry into action. Marvel at the chemistry of LED and incandescent bulbs and uh, maybe even make a cake or two. Yes, because baking actually does require, believe it or not, quite a bit of chemistry. <laughs> it really does. So yeah, normal cooking, you know, you can dish, you know, bit of this, bit of that baking, you got to be precise or you screw the whole thing up. Yes, so, indeed. So yeah. Um, no, this was very fascinating. I know that, you know, you're saying that's with, you know, it's not necessarily your thing, but I still think you did a pretty excellent job of explaining Thank you. the history of it. And I once again, learned some stuff. So excellent. I'm that's assuming everybody else did. Yeah. That's, that's why we're doing these science with Lars so that, people can learn something so once again i appreciate you coming on and Thank doing some science me. so uh, unless you have anything else you want to add or anything like that i guess we can go ahead and uh, wrap it up no just uh have a great holiday and happy new year yes yes and with that 
listening friends, I'm going to go ahead and sign off. And since this, of course, is a sciencey one, I'm going to change my ending up a little bit. Remember, try to live your life in a way that would make Carl Sagan proud. Thank you for listening to Musings of an ADD Mind. If you enjoyed this podcast, or even if you didn't, please hit the subscribe or follow button.